Hello, it's Lane, Catherine Levinson. Long time, no see, no hear, no talk. We've been working on a bunch of stuff over at Tripod, and you're about to hear one of the things we've been doing over the past couple of weeks. I had the honor of being invited by the New Orleans Museum of Art to be in conversation live on stage in front of an audience uh, as part of the museum's literary arts and letters series. This is something where NOMA, the New Orleans Museum of Art, welcomes authors, poets, journalists, playwrights, literary scholars, all different types of folks to the museum to have public conversations that reflect on literature and often, you know, find this classic intersection of arts and culture. And so they bring out different literary figures and then they also pair them with local people in the community uh, to moderate that conversation. So I was asked to speak with a sociologist and native New Orleanian named Peter Marina. He wrote a book called Down and Out in New Orleans, Transgressive Living in the Informal Economy. It was a really interesting book. He did this thing, uh, which we talk about in the very beginning of the interview, which you'll hear, but he bases this book off of a book that George Orwell wrote in the 20s. It's a much lesser known Orwell book. Uh, You probably know Animal Farm. This is not Animal Farm, but this is called Down and Out in Paris in London. And Orwell was, you know, there at the same time that some of these other big literary figures were. But he went broke and then ended up living kind of on the fringes and entering these informal economies and uh, and lifestyles in Paris and London in the 20s and wrote this ethnography about these uh, these communities that are living outside of the mainstream, you know, capitalist society from 100 years ago. And so Peter Marina, who's from New Orleans, decided to take that model and do something very similar in contemporary New Orleans today. And, you know, for 10 weeks, he embarked with $100 in his pocket on, you know, finding a service job in the French Quarter and busking on the streets of Frenchman Street and miming, you know, in front of the Superdome, doing tons of different gigs and meeting the people that live in what he calls kind of this underbelly of the city. So tons of amazing anecdotes, experiences and stories. Um, Our conversation focuses a lot on what he learned about the people that are opting out of the society that we live in, um, very much based off of the ways that our capitalist structure can be oppressive to people. So I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. What you're about to hear right now is a short 10-minute version. I also, in a Krista Tippett on being transparent style, am releasing the full hour-long or or hour-long-ish conversation that we had. So pick your poison. I hope you listen to the whole thing. I'm running off right now to go host the first ever Tripod Trivia Night. If you're in New Orleans, and you're listening to this, you hopefully were there and had an amazing time. But for now, I I leave you with my conversation with Peter Marina about his book, Down and Out in New Orleans. You base the book on another book that was written almost 100 years ago by George Orwell called Down and Out in Paris and London. 
Tell us a little bit what that book is about and why you decided to apply the same premise and charge that Orwell did in Europe to contemporary New Orleans. Sure, absolutely. So uh, George Orwell wrote probably a lesser known book um, than things like Animal Farm or 1984, down out in Paris and London, where he was hanging out in Paris in the interwar um, period in uh, 1929. And he was staying in what would be equivalent in, uh, equivalent today of like a, a hostel. And he got his money uh, stolen and he found himself uh, down and almost out living in Paris. And so there's Orwell, you know, down and out, you know, beneath the veneer of this bourgeois society, exposing uh, this cultural underbelly of Paris. And to me, uh, I thought it was just amazing to, to go into those kinds of uh, less seen worlds. And you know, not coincidentally, in the 1920s, New Orleans was going through its own kind of renaissance as well. And people like Hemingway were here and other uh, literary critics of the time, this kind of New Orleans as Paris of the Mississippi. And uh, you know, post-Katrina New Orleans, and you see a, an, another influx of all these creative types and bohemians and intellectuals and artists that are coming here and um, you know bringing in this kind of new bohemia to the city of New Orleans. And I figured what it, how interesting it would be to juxtapose what Orwell was doing in 1920 Paris and to see what living down and out um, would look like here in, uh, in New Orleans. And so I had to do the same thing that Orwell did. I had to find a job. He found a job as a plongier, a dishwasher, you know, working in a lot of all those uh, French restaurants. And so I didn't know what kind of job I would get, but I ended up getting a job at Cafe Beignet on, uh, on Bourbon Street. That's how I started. Yeah, well, actually, that brings me to something that I wanted to ask you about. During this gig at, at uh, bartending, you wrote almost in this diary confessional fashion after a full day of this, or maybe it was a few, uh, not a single critical, creative, or intellectual thought passed through my brain today. There was no time for it. And then you go on to say that there's this false narrative in our country about what hard work is and what hard work means and what hard work brings someone. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me, you know, in, uh, Chomsky talks about this. If you would tell an, an American in the 1850s, uh, you talk about the concept of wage work, they would say, especially Republicans, they would say, that's un-American, that's chattel slavery, working for a wage. And you know, when you do it long enough, uh, you, you can feel that. And so um, you know, wage labor, wage slavery was something that was meant to be an apprenticeship. It was meant to be temporary, where you learn a trade, you learn a, you learn a skill until you can become your own craftsman. And of course, you know, that's not the turn that it took in, in the United States. And so you know, I would talk to a lot of other workers, and I would, I would say, man, aren't you exhausted? After a shift, you need three beers just to wear off the shock of everything that just happened. And they're like, oh, you're new to bartending. You get used to it. We do this day in, day out, almost every single day. And it gave me uh, you know, a, an appreciation for what so many New Orleans have to go through who depend on a service industry to make a living. And as we all well know in this room, uh, they, they do it for basically poverty wages. What were, of all the things, and you can let the audience know some of the other things that you did in this 10-week period, what are the things that surprised you that actually came naturally to you and that felt right? And what were some of the things that were just uh, impossible? You look at this uh, cultural underbelly in New Orleans, 
and you become impressed with all the different ways that people find to, to make a living, all the different talents that they have, where they can really strut their stuff, spread their wings, become who they are, avoid that humdrum mainstream conventional life, and live free without a boss and be self-entrepreneurs. You look at uh, one character in a book, uh, Shannon, the Frenchman Street poet. She sits there on, on Frenchman Street, and you, know, you have the strollers you know, doing a Maroney stroll, walking through DBA and Blue Nile and all these other places, and they stop, they see Shannon, and they ask, oh, you can, you can make us, a, you can write a poem. And she would say, pick a topic, and they'll say, pick love or absinthe or something else. And right there in a the spot, she'll bust out a poem, read it to them, and every, all the hours I spent with her, people were always impressed at her, at her poetry. And one of the things about doing this type of ethnographic work is you know, the, the type of research that I do, you don't just observe people, you don't just talk to people. You want to also perform how they perform. You want your body to move how their body moves. You want to try to be, uh, you want to try to, as best as possible, get into their consciousness, their mind. And, and so I would try to write poems. I'm not as good as Shannon or anything. And I, you know, I try to do things like pantomiming under, under the shadows of the Superdome with uh, Tim the Goldman. And you realize it's not that easy to, to mime, to stand there, to find a pose, to where tourists will look at you. You get nervous. You start blinking. So you just become so impressed, I think, with how people are able to carve out their own type of lifestyles in this cultural underbelly. Yeah, and I mean, you also try to challenge the general public's perception of these people, also making clear that there are oftentimes that someone that you're seeing on, you know, out, out on the street performing or busking, that was an active choice. And I think just giving some of the power back to that individual, that these are people that have sometimes fallen into a situation and fallen on hard times and are down and out. But, but many of these people have decided to opt out of the type of capitalist society that they find oppressive and are finding their own way by doing these things by choice. And it's just a reminder to, be, to never be thinking that we know why someone is doing what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I almost find it strange that so many people conform, so many people go to work, so many people abide by the rules. In sociology, we don't ask, we don't ask why are so many people deviant, we ask well, why do so many people conform? Most people, if they, weren't, if they had no financial or economic loss, to not going to work, they wouldn't go to work anymore. They wouldn't do it, which tells me that most people go to work every day for fear of what's going to happen to them if they don't do it, which means that we have an entire economic system that's based on coercing people to go to a place they don't want to go to every day simply out of fear of some type of economic loss. Something else you quoted about from George Orwell, that because there is this you know, subconscious, whether we're totally aware of it every day or not, this drive to plan our time and lives around you know, accruing wealth or any degree of wealth, it also then creates this strict image of those that have any degree less than us. Um, and, and there's a quote here, there are two quotes from, from George Orwell that I'm gonna read. Uh, it's curious how people take it for granted that they have a right to preach at you and pray over you as soon as your income falls below a certain level. And then he later says, it is fatal to look hungry. It makes people want to kick you. That all made me want to ask you, you know, what do you think about capitalism, Peter? You like it? <laughs> 
Right now we have this neoliberal economic system where you have a 0.1% that controls our political and economic system. Um, capitalism is supposed to breed things like competition originally. Now we, we see the absence of competition. We see multimedia conglomerates controlling the media industry. We see corporations uh, controlling and dictating our, our foreign policies. And what this has done is create, I think, a pulverizing, an unprecedented sense of uh, inequal social inequality in this country. And maybe it's time to re-examine what type of economic system that we needed. Maybe it's time to understand that capitalism was necessary to get us to where we are now, but perhaps we need a new type of social or economic transformation to push us uh, into a different type of history, one that serves uh, the people. You know, it was the Christian philosopher Kierkegaard who argued that when you separate the empathy or emotions from the intellect, that's a sign of society's decline. If you have an empathetic society, you couldn't uh, deny healthcare to a single human being you would understand that education should be free for everyone and anyone as far as you want to go through graduate school. You'd understand that every human being deserves basic things, not only health care, but food, a roof over their head, basic dignity. And today, I think it becomes obvious, especially when you hang around a lot of these people that are, that are you know, institutionally vulnerable, that this basic empathy, that the basic social contract that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters is being violated. Um, you know, entering this world both, you know, in some ways the mainstream service industry, getting a bartending job or working at a restaurant, and then also more of the, as you call it, the underbelly where you're doing these sideshows and freak shows and you're out on the street performing, you're squatting. Um, it also put a light on race relations in both worlds, in the service industry, just getting a job as a bartender, and also in these more alternative, informal economies. You make a lot of observations about race when it comes to you jumping in for an experiment and getting work and, and seeing how other people are treated. So can you talk about that? Sure, I mean, you know, you can see in New Orleans, and this is putting it mildly, that a lot of black folks get the short end of the stick. I mean, people that produce the culture of the city in the Faubourgs and the surrounding areas of the city, uh, only to watch it get sold by a billion dollar tourist industry in the French Quarter that doesn't benefit the cultural producers. And on top of that, we all know the story now of gentrification that disproportionately impacts a lot of renters um, and uh, members of the black community in a lot of our historically black neighborhoods who are getting continuously pushed out and pushed out. And you wonder, what's gonna happen to the city of New Orleans when those people that produce the culture, that produce the jazz, that produce the music, to, that produce our food, when they're no longer uh, living in their traditional neighborhoods, when they're pushed, pushed out, from outsiders. This is just a new form of colonialism, call it post-colonialism or neo-colonialism, but it's the same thing. It's the economic exploitation of a group of people for the benefit and profit of a few. And we can see that. It's evident in the city of New Orleans. Peter Marina, everybody, give it up for a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Good night. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music and to the entire Tripod Editorial Committee, uh, as well as Tripod's editor, Eve Abrams. 
Catch Tripod on air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. Of course, listen to the Tripod podcast as you're doing right now. You're doing a great job. Um, And as always, until, you know, the very last day, which is approaching, by the way, uh, we would love you to rate us and review us and let everyone know that this is a show that can go on and live on despite uh, new episodes, which as of 2019 will not be taking place. But that doesn't mean that all episodes of the past three seasons will not remain relevant and important and uh, necessary listening. So rate us, review us, really appreciate that. If you're listening to the short version of this right now, go listen to the long version. If you're listening to the long version, listen to the short version if you want. You have probably heard most of it anyway, but hey, sometimes you miss some things when you're zoning out. Uh, I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and I'll try to you later. <laughs>